Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We hope that everyone had a happy, healthy uh, Thanksgiving, uh, that you're all uh, thinking about how you're getting back to the gym uh, and kind uh, of cut calories at least for another 10 days until we get to uh, the rest of the holiday and year-end season where you can put on even more weight. I, my my, uh, my uh, holiday activity was to stand on the scale and watch the dial roll higher. Uh, it was very successful, uh, and, and I did watch the dial roll higher, and now I'm working on uh, paying that back. We'll see how well that, that works out. Uh, markets have been holding up just fine. Uh, and we are looking, I think, for a reasonable year-end. But let's not worry about what I think. We have Jim Urio here to give us the expert's insider opinion. Jim Urio, you know, is the far-cast fan favorite. Boy, that's hard to say at this hour of the morning. Urio is one of the greatest guys you're going to see on TV. And just turn up the TV when you see him on. He's managing director of TJM Institutional Services, been on the trading floor of the Chicago Merck Exchange since 1987 and uh, is a big CNBC uh, contributor. You just have to listen to him. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Farcast. Thank you for having me again. We are so glad you're back. Oh, I mentioned to you, uh, Terry Duffy is my new neighbor down in Florida. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. Terry's a good guy. That's awesome. Yeah. He, uh, we didn't get to spend much time together, but uh, nice guy and a nice family and uh, from, the, you know, just quick introductions. Uh, I look forward to getting to know him better. I, I also texted Barugian, who really knows him very well. And uh, so sure. uh, Barugian said what needed to happen was that Barugian should come down to Naples and stay with me for, you know, uh, a while. And then he All can, of February for me is what I want to do. So yeah, just think I, about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're invited. You just come. Uh, you may have to arm wrestle uh, uh, Barugian for the uh, better sure. bedroom. But, but that's okay. I, I think you got him, by the way. No offense, Jack. But <laughs> So, Jim... Uh, we're looking at markets that have slipped just below 28,000 on the Dow. We're trading at 3120 on the uh, uh, S&P futures I'm looking at this morning. Things don't look awful. What do you think's going on with markets as we come into the last three weeks or four weeks of the year? You know, the last bit of last year was not great. From December 5th to December 24th, the market fell about 12.5%. It was a bad period. Do you think we're going to see that again? Uh, no, I don't. I think, okay, we do look at earlier in the week when President Trump came out and said, you know, basically that he's not in any hurry to, to solve the trade issue. It could linger past the election. And the market moved down on that. Now, if you take a big step back, anyone who's involved in a high-level negotiation, what, what is the opposite? Is he going to say, oh, man, I'm pressed for time. I better get this done before the election? It was not even newsworthy. The fact that the market broke on it, to me, was more of a um, – uh, an indication that it was extended. They, you know, from early October, it had been on a one-way street. It broke through all-time highs. Uh, you know, to think that it needed to pull back a little bit is fine. If they're going to use that as an excuse, that's great. But I'm not going to believe that that's a big news headline. Okay. Uh, so, but we are seeing the market move back and forth on China. Uh, and and uh, even though today it said that, you know, uh, headlines today say, you know, there's not a lot uh, going on with China. Uh, futures are up. Um it doesn't are, – are, are markets gotten to the point, and if they have, they've done it in the last 24 hours, but have they gotten to the point where they've sort of figured out that this noise doesn't matter much? No, they haven't. I, you know, this is amazing to me. This You and I and most logical, reasonable people figured out that this was all just chatter and it had no meaning about eight, nine months ago, maybe even a year, but the market still reacts. I'm just – I'm amazed by that. But I, I do think – Something and, and I, I I believe that from a broader market standpoint, the we're fine with having the China trade thing linger on forever because not forever obviously I'm just being dramatic, but lingering on for a long time because it gives the Fed kind of cover to stay somewhat dovish even in the face of relatively good or not bad economic data and earnings. So remember, and I don't mean to go on too long here, but I think that that a dovish Fed is just the kindling and the logs for a, a stock market rally. But the notion that the Fed is more dovish than they should be, that's really the flame that lights it. And I think that we're actually still there right now. That doesn't mean we can't go back down to 30, 35 where we broke out, but I still think I'm fine, I'm fine being a bull. 
you think that the Fed uh, is being more dovish than they should, though? Is that what you just yeah, said? Yeah, I mean, if you just look at our domestic uh, situation, I think that that's an easy argument to make. And I know they keep saying that it's not just a domestic thing. It's global. There's a lot of things going on on the planet, and that's fine. But I think we have a, a Fed that's a little overly cautious. And I know we've seen some a little bit declining data, too. And we're going to you know, see tomorrow that when the job number comes out, it's a big deal. Um, but, yeah, I do think that they're a little extra dovish. So, you know, it was, I mean, uh, through over the last 10 years, Jim, we've, when we saw bad economic data, everybody, we'd see markets rally, which, which was always very counterintuitive to see stocks going up when you see bad economic data. And the reason was that it kept the Federal Reserve at the table. They said, oh, the economy's still weak. We can keep adding money. We can keep up uh, quantitative easing. We'll buy more bonds. Interest rates are going to go even lower. And, and that's been kind of unimaginable, really, at different points, that interest rates could go much lower. But – uh, so you're kind of saying that we're still on that bias where the Fed is uh, has a has an accommodative tendency, I guess is what sure. you're saying. That's going to keep stock prices looking a little bit better. Uh, I think that's I think it's valid, huh? Yeah, and I I think it saddens me when I say it, by the way, because I'd love to for you know just for the growth potential of individual companies to be wonderful to have it not be quite so correlated. But yeah, I I think that the the when you juxtapose the, the uh, earnings ratios in the in the stock market versus what you can get on your you know, government bonds. The, the stocks have looked attractive for quite a while, and I think they still do. And then you look at bonds themselves, and we have you know this 1.18 yield, and Germany has a negative 0.38 yield. You know, even that, I mean, the world is awash in money, and it has to end up somewhere, and the U.S. stock market still looks like the spot. At 17 and a half times earnings, are U.S. stocks expensive, Jim? Should investors be wary? From a historical perspective, you'd say that it was, but then when you look at it versus what else there is to buy, and again, this is a this is not a good thing that I'm outlining here. That the world's central banks are forcing people to move further and further out the risk spectrum uh, by taking away safe yield other places. I don't think it's good, uh, but I think it's happening, and I think you can say, "Wow, they look expensive," but they could get a lot more expensive than this. Let's talk about risk for a minute, because over the past few years, one of the things that has worried me was that, you know, Fred and Ethel, when you talk to investors back when uh, I was in my salad days, and we, we, would, we would, you know, talk to people who were very old back then in their 50s and 60s. God, they were old. My God. Back then. <laughs> yeah, I know. Can you imagine people that? But you talk to them, and one of the things they would tell you is, you know, you really shouldn't invest anything in the stock market that you can't afford to lose. And they really did appreciate risk. And, and you, you, you heard echoes even of the Depression, and people still mentioned the crash of 29 from time to time uh, among, those older, uh, among that older cohort. Now I, I feel like Fred and Ethel says, well, if the stock market really dumps, the Fed's going to step in and save us. So I think that you know, by the Fed trying to save us, which I think in many ways they have, risk doesn't seem to matter as much to the average investor, and I wonder if that in itself is an additional risk that, that they've been ignoring the risk, that they feel more complacent, that the Fed will save them, um, uh, and, and that, that, you, you know, that, that, that the Fed trying to help has really hurt somewhere out there. Should they be thinking differently about risk? Yeah, of course they should be thinking differently. And even if you broaden that out to an institutional level, we see all these short positions in the VIX, which you know kind of mirror complacency as well. And that's just complacency is great right up until the moment that it isn't. Um, I'll tell you two things. One, you mentioned about the generation before. My father, who lived through the Depression, never never bought a stock in his life. He was willed some United Airlines stock back in the day, and it totally freaked him out. He sold it as quick as he could. Um, I, You hear me. Uh, we, we know we've known each other for a lot, a lot of years, and I am a bull. I was a bull last week. I rebalanced my medium and long-term portfolio, and I blasted it out on Twitter to, to just to remind people that risk exists. I rebalanced and sold a lot of long-term stock, and I'm, I'm glad to do that because that's what you do despite the fact that I'm still a bull because risks exist, and by the time I'm hoping that I'll see them coming, but you know, we've been blindsided before, obviously. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's really important, ladies and gentlemen. What Jim just said, uh, Jim just said two very important things, probably three, but I only listened to two of them, Jim. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, I, I have this ADD thing. Something flew by the window. Uh, uh, one was that complacency uh, doesn't matter until all of a sudden it does. It's just fine until it doesn't work. Um, and the second is that disciplined 
the professionals like Jim Uriel and like Michael Farr, uh, we follow disciplines because we know how we can be taken asunder by our emotions. Jim tells you he's bullish. Jim tells you his bias is towards being optimistic. But at the same time, he's going to look at that portfolio. He's going to assess the risk, and he's going to say, my discipline says when the numbers are here, uh, I'm – and I don't know what it is, Jim, but for our other clients it could be – I'm 70%, I know that I want 30% in fixed income, or I don't want that much risk, or I want more cash, and uh, the market has taken me out of my comfort position, and I have too much risk, I don't care how bullish I feel, I'm letting the numbers take me back to where I know I need to be. Is that, is that about and it? A, yeah, and it's a really hard thing to do, too, because everybody gets uh, jubilant as the market rallies, and then you know once you haven't seen a, a real correction in a long time, you believe it's just something that almost cannot happen. Again, so yeah, I think it's a difficult, difficult thing to do, but I think it's absolutely essential for long-term planning, long-term planning. At least it is. I mean, it is for me. Again, I always remind people. I, I tell you what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I, I I advise you know clients. I mean, uh, you know, institutional clients. So you know, I don't tell Fred Nuttall what to do. I tell you what I'm doing, though. In the face of me being bullish, I still rebalance. Uh, and I, I hope we get you back before the end of the year uh, here, Jim. But let's just finish here this morning because this has been hugely helpful to clients and, and investors, I think, everywhere who get to listen to you when you come on the forecast. And we get notes from them, which is really cool. Uh, and, and, yes, we're going to keep trying to convince uh, Jim Urio to keep coming on. Uh, and, by the way, if you're in Chicago, you need to go to Brant's. Uh, you need to go to Brant's and order everything on the menu <laughs> Uh, everything uh, everything yeah, you on the menu try. you want to try. It's all good. It's just all fabulous. So you need to try it all. Uh, so, Jim, as we look, at, we're getting ready to start 2020, which is hard for me to even say. Uh, we're going to begin the year 2020. Uh, what Do you see uh, a positive bias to the market? Where do you see interest rates for the year? Uh, good returns? Do you see a recession? Do you see inflation? How does it pan out for you? What is your what is your crystal ball? If you're making guesses, and we know you're guessing, well, but tell us what you're guessing. Sure, and that inflation thing, I'm not even sure what that is. You might have to explain that to me on another <laughs> show. Um, I don't think our long-term rates can get that high in the face of you know so much negative yielding debt around the globe, and I think that that still makes stocks look attractive to me. My bias is going to be long. And so I'll say if the S&P goes, you know, settles below 3,000, you know, which is 126 away, currently if it settles below 3,000, I might start to rethink that. But from a technical standpoint, it looks good. From a fundamental standpoint, it looks good. Um, I'm still keeping my bullish bias until, until noticed otherwise. Well, it certainly has paid off. And in spite of, uh, I'll tell you my, my, my worry, uh, I think that the path of least resistance for stocks remains higher. Uh, the, the, we continue to basically dismiss bad news after a 24-hour news cycle, and then we embrace whatever good news is there. Earnings, I think, earnings growth seems to be challenged, and, it's, and it seems to be a little bit lackluster, and a lot of the gains we've seen this year have been through price-to-earnings multiple expansion. That always makes me a little bit nervous. I worry about a trillion dollars in new debt every year. A trillion dollars in new debt. i I, I got to tell you, Jim, for the... 30-plus years that I've been doing this, I still can't figure out, I cannot get it in my head how much money a trillion dollars is. I just... I, oh, me neither. I, I think it's incomprehensible. It, and it, the fact that we're, it, in a good economy, we're still uh, accumulating that kind of debt is, is completely unforgivable. We talked about this, you know, modern monetary theory bless you, two and a half years bless ago. You. Everyone You're right. Keep going. That? Keep going. You're right. And it's unforgivable. It as, as hokum and stupid, which, by the way, it is stupid, and yet we're letting it bleed into our consciousness, and we're actually even doing it. Um, I mean, we're just spending money like drunken sailors, and this is absolutely absurd, in my opinion. Uh, I'm so disappointed in that uh, in the fiscally responsible politicians and that plank in the Republican Party that seems to have been abandoned, and nobody even wants to talk about being fiscally conservative. Shame on no you. No doubt about it. Shame on all yep. of you. And, 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 and I hope that at some point uh, there will be a reckoning from future generations will be able to ruin your reputations and drag you through the dirt uh, at, long after you're dead for what you are going to do to those young people right now. Shame on you. Uh, yeah, shame. I agree. And, yeah. You know, uh, once again, Jim Urio, an example, again, of why the world would be a better place if uh, people just listened to Urio and Farr. That's what I keep telling people, but whatever. <laughs> 
Whatever. We're, uh, Uriel and Farr are available to uh, run uh, the office of the presidency. I don't think we want to go through a campaign. But we'll step in and become president or at least Fed chairman or something. No we'll, doubt. We'll, Only if it's an appointment. I'm not running for anything, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, okay. Well, we'll get. Uh, can you be appointed to be president? You know, years ago, I, I thought we so. should outsource the whole thing to Goldman Sachs. I mean, they had half the jobs anyway. <laughs> you might as well just bring them in. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my friend Jim Murio, director of TJM Institutional Services, proud owner of Brant's Restaurant in Chicago. You should go to Brant's, order everything on the menu, and you should always listen to Jim Murio. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back on the Farcast. Please stay with us. Thanks for joining us this week on the Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We also bring you a daily podcast, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. You get a summary of markets, headlines, commodities, and futures before the opening bell. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Radio Public before 8 a.m. each day the U.S. markets are open. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. And now, back to Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. What a great segment with Jim Murio. He's such a terrific guest, uh, Harry. We just, I mean, we ought to make him permanent. I know we can't get his time, but he's just terrific. Yeah, he, uh, it, I just love being able to, uh, to get him on. Uh, he's he's uh, every month, uh, and sometimes I can get him twice. We'll try to get him on before the, uh, before the end before of the, the year. Before the end yeah. of the year, we've got to get his picture. Oh, you know what I want to do? I want to have uh, to- our top ten guests uh, for a special Farcast. Give them three or four minutes each. Uh, to give us their view of 2020. Ooh, great uh, idea. Views mm-hmm. from the experts um, of your view for 2020. And we need, uh, of course, Dan Mahaffey uh, for that as well. Um, and then we need to promote the hell out of it and show that we've got 10 of the leading experts in the country in their views for 2020. That could be an exceptionally good forecast. Ladies and gentlemen, you're wonderful to join us each week. And we know that one of the reasons you do join us is to listen to really bright minds from across the country and indeed across the world Dan Mahaffey, one of those, Senior Vice President, Director of Policy, Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He manages their policy programs. Uh, He's just a very smart guy and um, has great experience, of course, uh, in China, in securities studies, and provides great insights to us every week on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Glad you're back. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, as always, for the uh, kind introduction. It's always good to be with you. Uh, it's wonderful to have you. Dan, lots going on. We were talking to Jim Urio. Oh, and Dan, uh, hang around for segment three, because we have my friend Dr. Jay Bryson, who has gone on with us before. Jay Bryson now is the acting chief economist for Wells Fargo and has been over for over a year. He was with uh, the Federal Reserve for a while as an economist, just one of the brightest guys coming up in segment three, but you, you need to hang out for that too, Dan. You're going to like that. Yep, can't wait to hear that. Um, uh, so, Dan, we've uh, uh, had uh, China hot, China cold, China hot, China cold, markets up, markets down. It's just so stupid. Uh, the president also <laughs> has been over at NATO, though that was a bit abbreviated. And we are hearing from Nancy Pelosi, and this matters a lot to Wall Street, folks. All of these things matter to investors. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says that she is pushing the USMCA, the new NAFTA agreement, through Congress. Looks like that's happening right now. Should get to the Senate, we hope, before year end. Uh, That's a big deal. Lots going on in Washington. What's catching your attention, Dan? Mm -hmm. Well, I think certainly, uh, as you mentioned, China, what we see with these negotiations, the back and forth, we're finally realizing, and we we discussed this when we were getting closer towards, you know, when they started to separate this out into phase one and phase two. The problem with phase one is that there is phase two. And therefore, you have to figure out what you're prioritizing now and who's going to blink on phase one in order to put something off to phase two. And I think that's why we're going to go right up to, I almost imagine, the last minute on December 15th. Uh, before we get an actual announcement of what a phase one deal looks like. Is that a real deadline? I mean, does anybody really expect that the president will follow through with tariffs on the 15th that he won't remove on the 17th? Well, I think, look, we can look Because he at, hasn't uh, so far. <laughs> well, he hasn't so far, and I think the, the challenge there is it's complicated. He can't really do it without a good deal in hand. 
And I think we're going to see this on some of the other issues we can talk about with UMSCA and the Senate, some of the other areas. He's got to keep some of these Republican senators uh, in line with impeachment looming. So is he willing to go as far as he would on trade or some of these other areas? Perhaps we saw him make noises about Argentina, Brazil, the uh, the digital tax with the French. He's, you know, there's that trade hawkishness coming back, but we're not seeing the action. We're seeing the rhetoric, but not the action. Okay. So uh, China on, China off, and probably not much happening there. Uh, a phase one seems to me wildly optimistic, given all the banter back and forth. Um, you know, a whole lot of talk and not a lot of action. A uh, whole lot of hat, not a lot of cattle at this point. I'm going to stop there, Harry. I started to go through my uh, hat and cattle list. We do uh, only have 15 minutes per segment. True. Uh, okay, yeah. so um, uh, stay tuned. You don't expect anything before – do you expect anything really before year-end, Dan? Well, staying on, staying on theme, I expect a lot of sizzle and no steak. I love it. I was going to go there next. Damn it. Uh, more sizzle, no stake in terms of trade talks. Jim Murillo was saying that he thought it was good for markets just to leave this unresolved because it kept the Fed on the accommodative side of the sidelines uh, and nowhere near uh, discussions about hiking rates maybe ever again in their lives. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. There, there is a point there that does keep the Fed kind of at the table for a mm -hmm. bit. Uh, the president was overseas earlier this week. He, he made it back sooner than expected, but he went to the NATO uh, meeting uh, mm -hmm. in, in uh, London. Uh, tell us about what happened there. Uh, there seemed to be some fireworks, and was anything accomplished in any of those discussions at NATO? I think the one thing that's not getting the attention it deserves is actually that NATO did put forward a plan for defending the Baltics, so Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, those countries that are really on the front lines with Russia, they would, you know, perhaps be the next Ukraine. Yep. They actually did manage to get a plan through on uh, improving the joint defense of those countries. I think that's a very important message uh, to Moscow. But a lot of that was overshadowed by uh, certainly, uh, you know, if, if there were the three amigos in the Ukraine investigation, uh, Trump, Macron and Erdogan, I think, are the, the three banditos when it comes to NATO <laughs> unity. And the, uh, the challenge there has been certainly that Turkey's pulling it one direction. Trump has always been skeptical. And I think Macron sees this moment of weakness to make himself into a new de Gaulle. And, and none of this works well for uh, keeping the alliance, uh, you know, which at 70 years old uh, is certainly looking for its next, uh, next mission, next generation, its lease on life. And these, uh, these leaders have not helped. So there was a there was a little bit of, of a kerfluffle with uh, President Macron and President Trump. Um, mm -hmm. They uh, uh, on immigration was the topic I heard, but yeah, but, on, but on returning ISIS, uh, you know, we even saw people looking at their body language, how long they were shaking each other's hands. Uh, that was a bromance that has definitely gone south. Oh, it's so sad, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, it was so promising and young love as always, you know, in the springtime yeah. and the birds are singing and the flowers are blooming. And then it all just and, goes asunder. And Macron, you know, always has a taste for an older partner. But the, uh, you know, there is the, uh, you know, that, that natural tendency of the French president to eventually want to stick it to transatlantic unity. Uh, and I guess Macron's grown into that, uh, grown into that role. Um, beyond that, though, you know, President Trump, this kerfuffle with the hot mic and the, uh, you know, Trudeau and others talking about him behind his back. I could have actually imagined that being much worse. Yeah. Um, well, now let's go to Trudeau for a minute, because that that's that's uh, may even be more serious than Macron. Uh, mm -hmm. If you think about Trudeau, uh, exactly what did Trudeau do? Well, it was Trudeau was talking about, uh, you know, yet another press conference that President Trump was holding and then that the uh, the staff had dropped their mouths when Trump changed the schedule. Um, and look, there's been this undercurrent uh, among world leaders. We hear story after story at these summits about how Trump is late or, or doesn't show to certain panels or, or sessions. And 
there's this frustration and it was caught on the open mic and you know now we're saying well the canadians were saying that they were just talking about the press conference and that people's jaws dropped when he said that the g7 would be at camp david uh, because everyone knows the president hates camp david uh but the you know it still does not add to the bone homie between washington and ottawa and we're, when we're trying to get uh um usmca across umsco across the uh across the uh, well, but in, indeed the the president uh left um uh mm. the the uh, uh nato meeting early um uh, unscheduled didn't go to the final press conference photo op all of that stuff he just left uh and words were i mean the the the, the reports said suggested that the president did so uh taking some umbrage at um, mm -hmm. the levity shared at his expense well certainly look if if, if we can look at it at a point where as i said earlier there's he's facing this pressure on the domestic political front with impeachment and i think that closes off some of his behavior patterns that would uh give republicans in the senate second thoughts and therefore if perhaps the worst we see out of this is him just leaving early uh, that might be the, the best that could come out of him taking umbrage out of this, that he thinks he sent his message by uh, ghosting the final part of the, uh, the uh, summit and being on his way. Okay, so USMCA is a very important deal for this country. It's an important deal for markets. Nancy Pelosi seems to have pushed it through the House. It has to go to the Senate maybe this year, maybe at the beginning of next year, and then it goes to the president. Is uh, it, knowing that Nancy Pelosi has pushed this through as the president, are you hearing? Is he inclined to sign this? I mean, this can a lack of a lack of deal here on this USMCA, in my opinion, would create a significant economic headwind. Oh, it would, and, and the president has to get a deal on this because if you just consider the the importance of the the North American market for agriculture and manufacturing, if those are the you know, his base economic uh, constituencies, uh, he, they have to get this through because otherwise, think about it, he's, he's going to be uh, an, an offer when it comes to trade, uh, you know, unless you consider some of the smaller South Korean and Japanese deals. But when it comes to the big trade blocks, North America, China, and the EU, uh, he'll be, uh, you know, shooting a, a blank uh, scorecard when it comes to the re-election. Okay, so and you think you, you be... think that this is going to be more noise, and you think that this gets passed? Do you think that, that USMCA... I do think it gets passed. I think there, there's too much uh, writing on it right now to not have it passed. Okay, that's, th that is actually the most encouraging thing. And have you heard anything along those lines on Capitol Hill from... from I've uh... heard it uh, that thinking on the, on the president's record and his trade record going into an election, as well as Democrats having to show that they're not just about impeachment and investigation, that they can deliver something. It's actually, believe it or not, in this environment, it's one of those things in Washington that we can call a win-win. Wow. Okay, terrific. Absolutely. Well, we'd like a win-win, and that one is an important one. As you look at the um, landscape now for the Democrats, we are seeing uh, Joe Biden doing pretty well. We're seeing P Pete Buttigieg doing pretty well. Um, we are uh, seeing others not, and looks like uh, more will drop out of the race before uh, the next debate. Give us your read. Tell us what's happening. Well, I think certainly what you're seeing is that Biden is like the Energizer Bunny. Although weakened, he's not going anywhere, and he's still maintaining national strength, even though his fundraising numbers are concerning, although his tax will, will help with that. Buttigieg rising in Iowa and New Hampshire is certainly interesting, but the question becomes, uh, has he peaked too soon? And will he, if he does continue to keep that lead, can he take momentum from those states anywhere else into the country? Is it fair and to compare him to, is it fair to compare Buttigieg to Barack Obama? Well, Barack Obama, again, was, again, in, relatively inexperienced, but at, at least Barack Obama had had Senate experience, had federal government level experience. I don't doubt Buttigieg's capability or, or talent, but that experience question is going to be much harder for him to answer than President Obama. But then again, traditional wisdom in politics now is completely upside down. Okay. When I talk to people, and we've got to go, Dan, I can't believe it, but um, uh, when I talk with 
politicos inside. When I talk to the uh, Charlie Cooks and the Greg Valliers and others uh, in here, uh, they suggest that the problem, uh, one of the main problems for Pete Buttigieg is going to be the African-American vote. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and um, is, do, you, do you agree that that's a real issue? Can you quickly tell us why you think it's an issue and can Buttigieg overcome that? Does this guy stand a chance or is he just the best vice presidential candidate we're looking at? I think for 2020, he's the best vice presidential candidate we're looking at. Is he going to be I, number two to Biden? I, I see that as being too white of a ticket, though. That's the problem. He would have been a perfect number two for a Kamala Harris or uh, or even a Cory Booker or Deval Patrick. You know, that would have been uh, an ideal ideal spot for him. But however, you know, looking at this, though, the, again, the, the African-American vote is an issue for him. One, because you have to continue that momentum. South Carolina comes after Iowa and New Hampshire. Heavily African so, so Biden's our guy. Biden's going to be the guy. Biden, again, he just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The, you know, the age thing. You're not going to tell me it's matter. Bloomberg, are you? <laughs> well, that's the that's going to be the interesting wild card, uh, because how does he move the the resources he's going to be able to move into this, and he's not doing this without a path to victory. Uh, we heard uh, in, in my notes getting ready to talk to Dr. Jay Bryson, uh, Jay had said that they've done a study on election years going back into the 1940s. They tend to be pretty robust years for stock markets. The economy tends to do pretty well during those years, too. We're going to cross our fingers here. So as I look at, at uh, uh, Joe Biden, and, and so basically, ladies and gentlemen, that means that we don't have too much to worry about if history is a guide for markets and the economy given this presidential election year. He also points out that most people don't really start paying attention until Labor Day anyway. Uh, I, God willing, I wish that they'd quit. It wouldn't it be nice if they didn't run ads until Labor Day? But uh, I'm afraid we're all going to be well barraged. If you, if, as I look at Joe Biden, um, uh, all I can think of is uh, Senator John McCain and his need to kind of offset his age and uh, some of his whiteness uh, by mm. reaching out to Sarah Palin, who seemed to be, you, you know, this um, uh, Republican lightning rod, conservative, snappy, attractive young woman who was going to, you know, with her governor experience, going to help carry the ticket. And boy, did that backfire uh, on Senator mm -hmm. McCain. Is there a choice for Senator McCain you think that would be the right choice that would not backfire? For uh, Vice President Biden, you mean? Vice President uh, Biden, sorry, yeah, yes. For Vice President Biden's choice, yeah. You know, certainly I think you put me on the spot there on, on what would not backfire because you have now, and this is the challenge for Democrats in 2020, you have a Twitter base that seems to be unhappy with everything. Yes. And, you know, how that feeds into the media ecosystem and the narrative about their candidate is going to be a challenge because it's going to have to say it's going to have to convince them that you this is the good enough ticket to beat Donald Trump. We can revolutionize society a little bit. You down can the pick road. anybody you want. Tell me who Biden picks. Pick one. Best pick for Biden. Best pick for Biden would be Buttigieg in my mind. Would Pete be Pete Buttigieg? A Biden Buttigieg BB ticket. Okay, <laughs> uh, we're going to see how that evolves with our friend Dan Mahaffey, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Farcast. We're going to be right back with the chief economist for Wells Fargo worldwide, uh, the very bright and the nice as hell Dr. Jay Bryson, my good friend for many years, when we come back on the Farcast. This is Harry Jennings, producer for the Farcast. Thank you for listening. Michael welcomes guests every week to the Farcast to help uncover the trends that fly beneath the headlines that impact our world, the economy, and the investing environment. If you have a group or conference and would be interested in Michael presenting his assessment and forecast for the economy for the coming year, please give me a call at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. Michael has delivered the keynote address at the YPO Economic Summit, spoken at the Matheson Financial Advisors Conference, 
Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce and a wide range of other venues. We are booking now for dates in 2020. I'd be happy to talk to you about your audience and potential dates. And now, back to the forecast. Thank you for joining us on the forecast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us. What a terrific segment uh, with Jim Urio and then Dan Mahaffey. Uh, and now the piece de résistance, uh, mes amis, huh? Monsieur et Madame, is my friend Jay Bryson, managing director and acting chief economist for Wells Fargo Securities. He used to be the chief international economist, and now he is the total head. Fred, I don't know why in the hell they have you as acting chief economist since 2018, Bryson. I mean, why, they ought to make you CEO, triple your pay, give you stock options, and get it over with. I don't understand. You're the smartest guy on the street. Well, I guess I, I guess I just do a lot of acting in general, so maybe that's uh, maybe that's why. I, I let me know who you need me to call over there to get all of this straightened out for you. Um, I. I uh, or uh, Jay, if 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 and, and you know you don't think that's a strong enough call, I can uh, I can have Laurie uh, call uh, and and she can. <laughs> please, please do. I think she's probably a little bit stronger. <laughs> a little stronger puts the fear of God in me most mornings. I promise. This is my lovely bride of over thirty years, and uh, Jay and his bride and I were friends. Uh, have been friends for a long time. Jay, thanks so much for being back on the on the Farcast. It is such a treat to have you here and to get some of your time now, given all your responsibilities at Wells Fargo. Uh, would, so, Jay, give us your read on the economy. I did an interview yesterday with Bankrate where this reporter was saying, you know, Mr. Farr, the Fed raised nine times, then they've eased three times. So that basically is them saying they were 33% uh, wrong. Um, why was the Fed so wrong? <laughs> I, I, I suggested that the background changed and the Fed needed to change, and I gave her my lecture about not only uh, the inflation data but expectations for inflation as being equally important for Fed considerations. How would you answer that, and what do you think about the economy right now? I would say the economy is in an okay sort of place. I mean, if you look at it, where's the underlying trend right now? It's probably around 2%. That's not great, but it's you know, it's not awful either. I mean, I, I think the reason why the Fed kind of had a back off there was, I mean, there, there was two things that was going on. One was the effects of their tightening. You know, the dollar did strengthen um, somewhat because of that. It did have an effect on the on, on the housing market as well. But there was another thing that I think kind of weighed in there a little bit, which I don't think they they could calibrate all that well. And frankly, I don't know how much of, of, all of us can calibrate it. And that is, you know, kind of the, the uncertainties related to, to trade policy. Um, you know, what we have had over the last, say, six quarters is a pretty marked deceleration in, in business fixed investment spending, due in part to some of this uncertainty regarding trade policy. And, you know, I think they kind of missed that. Um, that's one of the reasons why the, the economy has slowed um, over the course of the last year and subsequently why they have uh, they've eased 75 basis points since the summer. Let me just go back, because I agree with absolutely everything you just said, which, by the way, should scare the hell out of you. Uh, but uh, to go back through, through what you just said, when you said um, that uh, the, the basically t trade uncertainty, uh, you kind of coupled that with uh, lack of business investment. And ladies and gentlemen, when you look and try and calculate JD GDP growth, you take a look at business investment, you look at foreign trade, uh, you look at uh, consumer spending, and then you look at government spending. So this business investment in the economy is one of those four elements of GDP. And I think, Jay, if I'm interpreting this right, you're saying that th certainly that number hasn't been there. Business has not been investing. It's one of the reasons we've seen very tepid GDP growth, but still not awful. And, and part of the reason that that's been tepid, are you saying, is because of this uh, trade uncertainty? Yeah, that's part of the reason. I, mean, I don't want to lay the entire blame at the, at the doorstep of, of trade policy uncertainty. Um, and there's a number of things that have caused business fixed investment to, to slow down. But 
we do know when we look at surveys that different institutions have made uh, of, of the business sector, I hear this when I go out and I talk to clients. Um, you know, so example, uh, let's say you're, pick a name, you're Caterpillar, you're John Deere, you have 50 to 60 percent of your revenues coming from um, overseas. Um, and you see the trade policy of the United States being some, somewhat uncertain right now. Is this a great time to be committing to, you know, a billion-dollar right. capital expansion plan? Right. No, it's not, right? right. And, and I hear that when I talk to people uh, or talk to businesses. And so, yes, that uncertainty has been a contributing factor to the, to the weakness we've seen in, in business sector investment spending. Okay. So, Jay, as, as we – I'm going to talk broadly just looking back a little bit, and then I'm going to go uh, look forward 2020 and, 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 and more – uh, but as I uh, am looking back and as I go back and try and figure out what's happened over the past 10 years with monetary policy and GDP growth, we seem to have stalled at that 2% GDP growth level in spite of massive amounts of quantitative easing, uh, an increase of the U.S. debt that, that, that is carrying on at a remarkable raging pace that makes me crazy, by the way. A trillion dollars a year is just making me nuts, and that nobody cares is making me nuts. And you might tell me, I'm, I'm happy for you to tell me that I'm stupid about that, um, yeah, but uh, that really does bother me. But it seems to me, uh, Jay, that what we have, we haven't had really a supply problem in the economy. What we've had is a demand problem. Indeed, we can make more donuts. We just don't have more people there at six o'clock in the morning wanting to buy the extra donuts. The consumer is, you know, shown some wage gains over the last ten years. But if the economy is based two thirds on the consumer, and the consumer doesn't have a lot more money to spend, how far can we expect to drive the economy and? How long does this sort of supply-side solution uh, to economic woes stay with us? Is it going to cripple us? If I got all this wrong, tell, tell, please tell me why I'm stupid. Well, I, you know, I think, Michael, it's more so if you look at this expansion, the last 10 years, so that's kind of, that's kind of long run. You know, when you look at 10 years, we've averaged somewhere around 2%. So why is that? Well, the answer is because the, the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy, what it can grow at on a sustained sort of basis, is roughly what we estimate to be about 2%. What it boils down to is two things, and they're both these are both supply-side sort of things. One is... Um, the, the growth in the labor force. The more people you have making widgets, the more widgets you can make. Um, and, and what that is right now is roughly about a half a percent a year. That's a demographic factor. The other thing is productivity. So if you don't have any more people making widgets, um, you can still make more widgets if they become more productive. And that's about you know investment spending. It's about technological change things of that nature. And that's relatively weak um, in this cycle as well for, for reasons that aren't completely understood, but probably one of the main reasons is we just have not had a major technological breakthrough in the last decade or, or two. And so, um, you know, you get back to, so you were talking about, you know, spending and all that sort of stuff. If productivity growth were higher, productivity is, is always and everywhere good because it creates income for somebody in the economy. If workers are more productive, then businesses can afford to pay them more. And, you know, one of the things why wage growth has been relatively slow in this environment is because productivity growth hasn't been all that slow. So what we need, really, is we need a productivity acceleration here, and that's, that's easier said than done. I mean, one of the things that would help there would be if business-fixed investment spending were stronger. If you take away some of this uncertainty related to trade policy, you should see some acceleration in business-fixed investment spending. But the other thing you need, and again, this is easier said than done, is you need a major technical, uh, technological revolution that's coming at us uh, slowly. It's called artificial intelligence, and that's a productivity game changer. But that's only in its, you know, it's only in its early stages at this point. Um, five, ten years from now, I think that will must be a bigger force in the economy, and you could have a, a stronger potential growth rate. But until that changes, you know, the, the, the long-run potential growth rate of the U.S. economy is going to remain slower than what we, you know, people year in my age, um, you know, have been accustomed to. And so, uh, it, it, tell, uh, I have been sort of saying, and, and, and Tyler Matheson on CNBC keeps making, he sort of makes fun of me, but he, I can tell he kind of likes it, uh, 
You know this ad where okay is not okay, uh, where, where, the, yeah. where the doctors mm-hmm. the, the doctor hasn't necessarily been reinstated and he offers you know no confidence at all to the patient. I think it's such a funny ad, but I've gone back on my every time I'm on CNBC here lately and saying actually guys economically and market wise okay is okay. I mean two percent it's not great but it is okay and this inflation rate not great but it is okay. And 17 and a half times earnings on stocks, not cheap, not overly expensive, but okay. I'm, uh, and it doesn't feel like Goldilocks. Goldilocks sounded like it was such a nice solution. This doesn't feel great uh, to me. Does it feel great to you, and do you think it's okay? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. You know, back in, you know, if you go back to the 90s, right? So how fast yeah. were we growing back in the 90s? You know, roughly three yeah. percent per annum. Okay, right. part of it. Part of it was because uh, we had we had stronger labor force growth. We had stronger population growth. I mean, at the end of the day, what it boils down to is um, what it boils down to is um, income growth per capita. Yes. How much does your does, does an individual person's um, welfare go up over time, and you know. So I'll give you an example. Would you rather? What would you rather be living in? An economy in which um, it's growing four percent, but the population growth rate is five percent, or would you rather live in an economy that's growing two percent without without any population growth? And the the answer, at least for me, is I'd rather live in that second economy, right? Because everyone's getting two percent better on average per year, right. and in the first economy I gave you, the four and the five actually. Real incomes declining one percent per year right. per capita, uh, um, and so when you look at it in that in that sense, it's not all that bad. Um, you know, again, nobody likes this two percent sort of growth, but part of it is because the population is just not expanding as fast as it did, you know, a decade or two or three um, ago. Okay, so uh, as we look forward, I have a I have a I have a bunch of questions for you now. Uh, that we've got to sort of jam in uh, as best as we can. Um, as you look forward, do you see any signs? Uh, what, when, when do you think the economy goes into recession next? I mean, how far out is that kind of a worry? And then I want to ask you about what it means to be in a presidential cycle year and have an election here and what that typically does, uh, what, what the risks or benefits are to the economy as you see them from your perch at Wells Fargo. Sure. Okay. So let's go to the first one. Uh, you know, the recession sort of thing. There's no reason to necessarily expect a recession anytime soon. That happens. Recessions occur when something large in the economy gets out of balance and then it cracks, like housing. Or 20 years ago it was tech. Or 30 years ago it was commercial construction. When you look around the economy today, there is nothing that is wildly out of balance. Um, that's that's getting ready to a massive sort of correction. Uh, the second way you get on, into, hang on, hang on, you know, hang on, into, hang on. What about the one trillion dollars in debt we're adding every year? Is that a concern to you? I mean, the U.S. debt. No, is really no, I, and I don't, I don't share your concern there. Um, you know, I think if it were a concern, it's a nice I think way of you, on him saying I'm stupid. I got that. <laughs> Go ahead. You're not uh, well, wrong no, about no, that. No, no. <laughs> I, you know, so, Michael, I think that it, that that's a problem that we need to start talking about. Start having a uh, a um, adult conversation um, about that. But I don't think it's a problem. Problem in the foreseeable future. If it were, the yield on the 10-year Treasury security would be a heck of a lot higher than 175 basis points um, today. There, are, there is no alternative to U.S. Treasury securities. It is the deepest, most liquid, most transparent financial market in the world. People all over the world want to buy U.S. Treasury securities. They will continue to fund the deficits for the foreseeable future. Now, that's not to say it can go on forever. I'm not saying that. But, you know, in, in the next five, ten years, the foreseeable future, I just don't think it's a, I just don't think it's an issue. The other way you get into problems, other than something that's majorly out of balance, would be um, what's the so-called exogenous shock. So, yes. so, so people you are my age remember the OPEC shocks of the 70s, oh, right? Yeah. Sure. Those things, just by their nature, are kind of unforecastable. Um, they could rise up and get you at any time, but we just don't know what those things are. So the point is, you know, there's not any reason to expect a recession anytime soon. I love to, love to hear that. I agree with you. Uh, just uh, I always stay nervous. And then uh, uh, finally, as we close out here, Jay, tell us what this presidential cycle means and what the possible impacts could be on the U.S. economy. 
Well, it always raises uncertainty, obviously, but, you know, we've gone back and we statistically have looked at this. We've looked at every presidential election since 1948, and what we what found, if anything, the economy actually speeds up. Um, in, in an election year. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen in this election year, but, um, you know, the uncertainty we've had in the past has not weighed on the economy. You know, let's face it, most normal people don't start to focus on the presidential election until Labor Day of next year. You know, inside the Beltway, there's a lot of talk going on about it and everything. But most normal Americans, they go about their daily lives, and um, they don't worry about it. They'll focus on it um, come September of next year. Ladies and gentlemen, this is we've been listening to the uh, chief economist for Wells Fargo Securities. Uh, it's such a great privilege to have you on the forecast, Jay. We are very humbled. Jay was with the Federal Reserve. He's uh, lectured at Johns Hopkins. I mean, this is a – Jay – uh, has his Ph.D. from the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Absolutely one of the smartest guys I get to talk to. More important, one of the nicest guys I ever get to talk to. Jay, thanks so much for being with us on the Farcast. Michael, always, always a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast. Uh, we uh, will be back with you again next week. Uh, I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in every week. In Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us this week on the Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guests, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and Dr. Jay Bryson. We come to you every week with experts and insiders to help you gain a deeper understanding of the forces that impact the economy and the investing landscape. Please subscribe and share with a friend. The Farcast is available for free on Apple Podcasts and all major podcast platforms. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know what you liked, what questions you have, and what topics you'd like to hear in coming weeks. We'd like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to future performance of any index fund manager or strategy. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at invest at farmiller.com and one of our investment professionals will be glad to help. We'll be back with you next week with Michael's scheduled special guest, Martin Barnes of BCA Research. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. <laughs>